Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Anyone with an interest in technology or venture capital cannot have missed the sudden ubiquity of AI. So we felt it was high time we discussed it on the podcast. James Pringle is a company founder, a turned investor who used AI in his business and now invests in companies that use it. He gives an overview of the current state of AI and discuss how he sees it being applied to his investments. Essential listening for the current zeitgeist. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we'd like to welcome back to the podcast, James Pringle, who is a VC investor at Portfolio Ventures. Welcome back, James. Hi, Brian. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be back on the show. It's our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to get to know a little bit more about you. And in case anyone missed you last time, do you want to tell us how you became involved in venture capital? Yeah, sure. I spent the early part of my career working at various startups. I then founded a VC-backed company, which I ran for four and a half years. After that, I started angel investing, which then led to me launching a VC fund. And then I left that fund and joined Portfolio Ventures about a year and a half ago, where I now serve as a as an investor. And we invest in UK tech companies across fintech, insurtech, and SaaS. And so that, that's my, my main role. And then I also have my own podcast called Riding Unicorns, which is a, a podcast all about high growth startups. And on there, we interview other VCs and founders of companies that are scaling very quickly. Uh, and we try and sort of uncover what it takes to build a high growth business. So yeah, it's a bit about me and my background and how I got into venture. Yes, I've listened to a few podcast episodes and they're, they're very good. So I highly recommend those. Not instead of, as well as our the ice never good, not instead of, obviously. Absolutely. To supplement, not yes. replace. <laughs> yes. And you mentioned Portfolio Ventures there. Do you want to give us a, a, a bit of an introduction to what they do and who they are? Yeah, sure. So it's founded in 2014, initially as an angel network. And then recently, we're, we're, we're about to close our third EIS fund. We invest from pre-seed up to Series A in fintech and shortech and SaaS sectors predominantly, but more broadly, anything where we feel the company has an unfair advantage from being headquartered in the UK. So yeah, so we've we've got track record through the Angel Network, and 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 now we're we're a fund primarily, and so we invest in roughly twenty UK companies per year. Yes, yeah, so so as a fund manager, relatively new, but it says Angel Network here. You've obviously been around a little while, which is an interesting mix. Yeah, and they 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 coexist now, so we still do angel network stuff, but really it's a, it's an add-on to what we do as a fund. So deal flow priority is fund investors in fund and then broader network. So it definitely pays to be an investor in the fund because you get to see more. So when we were talking about topics, we, we were chatting about two or three ideas. And one thing that we haven't discussed on this podcast properly is AI, or maybe you should call it machine learning. And it seemed like a good opportunity to do so because it seems to be everywhere at the moment. And what, what's really been going on? What's changed to, to make it? Yeah, so it's a 
big seismic change. AI was something that people were putting in their pitch decks kind of eight years ago with, you know, maybe one technical person on the team that was building some algorithms. And, and that wasn't really AI. What we've seen in the last sort of 12 months is true AI, which a broad definition would be technology that mimics human cognition to complete complex tasks. So it's much more than just an algorithm. It's actually a, a computer that thinks like a human would to, to try and complete a task. So it's, yeah, it, it's much more advanced. And it's a really exciting new paradigm, really, for the technology sector that is going to unlock a, a wealth of opportunities. But we can maybe cover where those opportunities will be and, and where to maybe tread with caution as well, because it's not it's not an easy sector to to make sense of. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that's and I, and I I I I'm very sympathetic to that because I think this is a sector I have actually got wrong. You know, full confession, because I think five years ago I was discussing this with some people and having casually sort of seen AI. I looked at how neural networks worked back in the '90s, showing my age, when they weren't really doing anything effective. And it seemed to me five years ago, there was kind of, okay, the technology was out there. It's kind of open source, access to anybody. And to me, it seemed it was going to be a bit like websites and that anyone could have it, anyone could use it. It's how you use it. But it wasn't really going to be that significant. And I just got that completely wrong. So, so yeah, so I can sympathize with your point about not understanding, because clearly I don't. It might be useful to start with some basics, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will know already, but maybe some of these might frame the context because I think they're helpful in understanding what investment opportunities come. So one of the phrase, one of the phrases is sort of AI and machine learning is really what's going on in the background. That's kind of one strand, I think, of MI. What's really the difference between these? Yeah, so AI is, as I sort of said, is quite a broad term. But it's in, in, in the current world, it is around technology that is behaving like a human would, would is, is creating output as if it was a human. Machine learning is a subsector of AI that is really just about training a system on a large set of data and, and, and looking for pattern recognition. So it's it's far less sophisticated, really, in the sense that it, it's just looking at big data sets, looking for pattern recognition, and then maybe optimizing something based on assessing all of that data. And it's usually very specific to a particular problem. So specific data set, specific problem, specific outcome. So, so have you got an example of where that, that, where that might be clearer? Yeah, so in my business that I founded, we used machine learning. We would uh, analyze thousands of video pieces of content from from our clients' databases, and we would basically rank what order to show them in within a, a, a within a playlist based on you know thousands of different data points 
and it was updating by the by the millisecond what what video we may show on a particular site to a particular person so that is a very specific use case of um, machine learning where it's it's constantly ingesting data and then building pattern recognition and and then creating a new outcome off the back of that that is miles away from what we're now talking about in terms of artificial intelligence which is uh, built on what we call large language models so llms which are taking vast amounts of data usually scraped from the broader internet but some can be input by engineers as well to then create sort of outcomes that on a on a whole range of topics that the engineers may not have even pre-thought of and so you can enter almost anything into this the the equivalent of what is a search bar to then yeah sort of get a response as if there is the world's most intelligent human in history sitting behind and and feeding out that answer based on data that is is so wide that we we couldn't even comprehend as a human how much data it can access so they are quite different one's probably more specific one's more general and one is focused on trained on one particular set of data versus essentially all the data on the internet which Uh is um hard to comprehend but yeah is 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 a very high level explanation of how they may differ yeah yeah and and the the sort of with breadth versus narrowness, I think, is a kind of interesting thing to consider, and, and and I think we're going to return to this later on when we come to investing about you know sort of training sets in that you know ninety you know half the internet or ninety percent of the internet or whatever is in some sense rubbish, and that in itself creates a problem in terms of you know I I, I guess on 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 one extreme you've got the issues about hate speech and 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 I think we had a early example of an of an AI online model that got turned into a Holocaust denier or 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 you know sort of espousing Nazi principles or something. So there's clearly an issue there in terms of just raw quantity. You need to do something to that quantity of data to actually make it useful. Yes. So there will be rules within these LLMs that try to look at ranking sources to to determine what's the most valuable versus what's maybe not so valuable. It also depends what you're using it for. If you're just using it to be creative in writing a LinkedIn post, then you're not looking at real hard data. You're not really, you you know, you're just looking at the the grammatical accuracy and and things like that. You're, You're kind of putting in what you've written, asking it to tidy it up. And you're operating in quite a low-risk task there. If you are generating a report in a financial services business that requires 100% accurate data, then that's less relevant. But there are now specific solutions being developed for cases like that, where they add extra rules on top of these services that say only includes information from the following sources that can be verified as a high level explanation of what the rule is there's a bunch of code behind that which is is incredibly complex but yeah so it, it all depends on how you're using ai and i think if you're yeah if you're looking to to write something really professional and long form then 
you, you probably it's probably not the right tool if you're just looking for it to make some minor tweaks to tidy up a linkedin post then then it's quite useful for things like that mm-hmm. yeah and and i suppose the other question that's probably key is in a sense why now i mean as as i refer to the concept of artificial machine learning it's been around for decades i first looked at these things in 90s and the sort of like two layer neural networks were kind of the paradigm which frankly can really do very much i i actually ended up looking at one that did a sort of stock selection sort of thing and effectively, all that popped out was a linear algorithm. We might as well have just done a linear regression. And I was like, well, this isn't doing very much. And, and you said it's, it's advanced. Why is it, have we suddenly had this paradigm shift? Or have we suddenly had a paradigm shift? Is this just a perception? We, we've definitely had a paradigm shift because we've gone from, there's a few things that have led to this. Firstly, billions and billions has been invested into the, the underlying technologies to to make this possible then there have been companies like OpenAI and google with bard that have come forward and made it into a product that consumers can actually use day to day so the interfaces are now available and then there's the the access to data there's the computing power there's a, a bunch of things that have led to it now being usable and when i say that you know Google bought DeepMind, a UK AI company, probably, I think, I think it was over 10 years ago now. And so, you know, that, that was, you could say that was probably a signal that there was going to be something pretty significant in this space. Well, I remember DeepMind from beating Kasparov at chess, which is exactly. the big move. So, exactly. So it's it's been around, but the difference was is that their solution wasn't accessible to to the layman and and every business and part of that was deliberate and commercial and you know partnering with companies like google was was a way to kind of fund research etc but now we're at a point where if there's a company in our portfolio that isn't using ai in some way whether that's for code reviewing writing code tests customer support sales and lead you know lead gen marketing every company should be looking at ai in some form within their business to to create a, you know better processes and generate an unfair advantage or just keep up to be honest if everyone's <laughs> using it but yeah it's it's gone from being something that was sort of behind closed doors and only accessible to a few to now being accessible to many uh-huh. Yeah, and I, and I think that thing about people using it is an interesting question because I remember a report from an, another EIS fund manager a few, about five years ago. Although it wasn't a report, one of the headlines that came out was a lot of people at a time were talking about using AI and claiming they're using AI, but they weren't really using AI. So or, or, or you know, maybe 20 or 30% of people said, we're AI companies, weren't really using it or weren't using it properly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it suffered from classic hype and buzzword and missignaling in the same way that blockchain has and virtual reality has and a bunch of other different hype themes have. You know, at the moment, there's buzzwords like community and sustainability, and th- those are also buzzwords at the moment that get thrown into pitch decks in a when sometimes companies don't really have 
those elements as part of their business. So it happens with every hype cycle and every hype buzzword. I'd say that artificial intelligence was particularly abused by you know founders maybe looking to raise money where after the DeepMind acquisition and looking to sort of validate that they had unique technology. We then actually got a swing the other way with people proudly saying that they were using no code and it was cheaper <laughs> to launch. Mm-hmm. So we, 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 it swings both ways. You kind of get some people saying that tech is so sophisticated and no one else can compete with us on the technology side. And then you get other people saying, we haven't built anything. We're just commercializing and we're, we're validating as quickly as possible. And now we've kind of rebalanced to a point where both can coexist, but the, the people that are saying they have AI everyone's much more aware of what that actually means. And so you can't really get away with saying you you are an AI business unless you can really prove that you that you are. So yeah, it, I think it, it happens with every hype hype buzzword. It gets abused to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And and then maybe presaging a little bit what go do you think you're clearly in the middle of a of a big hype cycle just now. Do you think what is going on is overhyped? Is it like you've People talking paradigm shifts and this is going to change the world, whatever. Do you think that's overdone, or it depends in what in in what you think the outcome of that may be? So, I think it is overhyped in the sense of I imagine we'll see a bunch of fund managers come out and saying they're investing in AI businesses. I actually think that's the wrong approach. I don't think that investing in core AI companies right now is very sensible unless you are a complete expert in the area and unless you have access to maybe ex-DeepMind employees, et cetera, in in the UK. I think the majority of AI is going to be developed by tech giants who have access to more data, more resources, more computer power than, than, than startups do. What I actually think the biggest opportunity is, is investing in real businesses that generate real revenue Uh, that have proven that they can go to market effectively, but they use AI to increase margin and increase efficiency and productivity within their own business. So I think that it is a paradigm shift, but maybe not in the context that everyone is necessarily thinking of, which is, I'm going to invest in the next AI startup that I come across, because I think that would, on the whole, be quite a a foolish approach, really, in the sense that, um, you know, the, the the real underlying tech is is going to be coming from tech giants. So it's more important to focus on companies that are maybe going after a specific sector or using the technology in a clever way, but have proven that they're using it in a way that actually appeals to customers. They can monetize that and they're growing quickly. And then that's they're potentially a good investment opportunity. Yeah. That's kind of interesting because I think one thing I've seen in previous sort of technology cycles is this idea of picks and shovels, which of course goes back to the gold gold rush when it's kind of like, okay, you, you can make more money by investing in the core things, core technology things that underlie everything rather than the actual applications because they're, they're perhaps, you've perhaps got more confidence over those more likely to be customers for those. You're saying that's not really a good strategy. Is, it, is this simply a function of expertise? Is it a function of money? Because I see, you know, the likes of OpenAI obviously spending an awful lot of money and Microsoft invests a lot. Google's investing a lot. I don't know what the other large language models are, but does it require hundreds of millions to develop one of these now? 
I'm sure the cost will come down and I'm not suggesting that like the only success of, you know, the underlying infrastructure will come from tech giants, but I'm suggesting that the majority of it will in the same that sense that cloud computing came out of tech giants and pretty much every startup in, in the world is probably using a cloud infrastructure provided by a tech giant, not by a startup that launched 10 years ago on the back of cloud computing being a new renaissance for for the industry. So I think the same, a similar pattern will unfold in the AI space where we will all use this as part of building businesses, but it will be be likely that the, the tech that you can trust the most in terms of reliability and and ease of use will be provided by an incumbent tech giant rather than a new startup with three PhDs that launches now. Um, there will be, I, I, I do think the, the investment opportunities are how the technology is applied and proving that you have product market fit to use the technology and it's growing quickly and you have a big, large target market to go after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if the picks and shovels sort of is out, you mentioned about sort of, sort of alluded to what does make a really interesting AI-specific opportunity for you at the moment? Well, I mean, the first port of call is looking at our existing portfolio and trying to help them understand mm-hmm. what they can in shouldn't be using to to try and improve margins and and we literally have case studies from within our portfolio where companies have saved a lot of money or managed to increase revenue significantly by implementing ai Mm -hmm. into their processes so that for us is particularly exciting Mm -hmm. then looking at and is that typically by more efficient underlying processes or that you know, is it customer targeting is it you know writing you know they're helping with writing what they're doing so we've had some companies there they literally started with we're going to use this to optimize our marketing copy mm-hmm. and then slowly the use of ai has sort of infiltrated the whole organization to now they use it across a whole load of things they've trained a bot on their documentation so that when you go and request, you know, create a customer ticket, you, your first responses will be from a chat bot, which is trained specifically on the, the company's documentation. And so they can get answers to customers much quicker and much more accurately than, than having a whole customer service team there, which are constantly, you know, trying to put out fires. If you, if you go and submit a, a support ticket through most yeah, fintech apps, it might say our average response time is two hours. And you'll go, you, you know, you, you might get an email when they finally come online and respond to you. Well, actually, uh, a lot of this stuff can be done instantly by a chatbot that's trained on, on, on your documentation. So that's just like one example. But then also GitHub Copilot is like a code writing or recommendation piece of software so as you're writing code it's predicting what you're looking to write next and it that has been shown to when when developers get used to using it has been shown to increase efficiency by as much as 2x mm-hmm. i've i've heard with the good good coders even more exactly so if you if you're if your majority of costs in a 
pre-seed seed stage startup when you're building your first version of your product are software costs that could be a huge time efficiency and cost efficiency that you're generating from that then it, you can also use it to write tests on your code so one of the biggest bugbears for developers is not only do they have to write code they have to write tests for their code mm-hmm. so that if something goes wrong they know where it's gone wrong. The, the, I remember that. GitHub Copilot can literally write these in real time alongside what you're doing. So, so that there are a whole bunch of use cases for existing portfolio companies, mm-hmm. which has been amazing to see, and we are strongly encouraging, whilst also being conscious to not waste time on things um, when resources are limited. So it, it always has to come down to either does it make you far more efficient day-to-day and extend your runway by saving money and time or do or or is this fundamentally core to your product offering and going to make the experience better for your customers so that's what we've been communicating to our existing portfolio in terms of like new investment opportunities i think we have come across quite a few sort of gen ai type businesses what do you mean gen gen ai Generative artificial intelligence is, is, yeah, sorry, it's just AI companies, basically. But they, and and there have been some interesting opportunities. We haven't pulled the trigger on any of them. I think that's because they are still a work in progress. Often the software actually isn't as maybe good as as BARD or ChatGPT in comparison because it's still early. So these are people who are developing their own large language models, yeah, or they're trying to ad- adapt a large language model okay. for a specific use case. Okay, so they take the chat GPT and write, say, okay, we want it for insurance and and claims management exactly. or something. Exactly, and and those are interesting use cases, but we felt that the the le- there's still a lot to learn, and also there is not always enough customer validation that this is actually a better experience, and obviously that is that's the most important thing. When mm-hmm. as investors, not only are we you know, looking at the management team and looking at the product and looking at the market, we're doing customer references and getting real feedback. We're speaking to the 40 or so companies in our portfolio and saying, would you use this? We're speaking to investors in our network that know the space really well and saying, you know, who can you tell, who, who, who do you know that would use this type of product? And if we're not getting a strong enough signal from those external voices about what this company is doing, that that raises more questions for us. And so um, it's important that we really feel confident that this company has something commercially viable. And we are not deep tech investors. There are some great deep tech investors out there who can maybe take a, a different view on something which is maybe yeah, more AI, more deep tech focused. But for us, we are we are looking at things that where there's real commercial viability and there's traction to prove that and there's growth that we can measure and and also project out going forwards. So it's just about the investment strategy at each fund. And for us, we just haven't found something that really ticks all of our boxes. But you know, some of the deep tech funds will We'll be able to maybe have a better view on on some of these things and be able to take a more of a risk in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to me is it's one of the challenges for a company is developing some sort of competitive advantage through AI, because you you mentioned there about using it in processes. Clearly, it's in, 
improving at a vast rate of knots at the moment. So saying this AI specifically gives you an advantage would be quite hard. Yeah, I, yeah, it would be. I mean, it, it again, it depends on what you're actually using it for, how, you know, how specific you can make the tool and and how much data you have to to train it on that specific task. So yeah, I, I agree. You know, we we've we're we're very wary of anyone that's sort of saying, you know, this is completely proprietary or it, you know, it's gonna you know allow us to completely dominate a sector. Okay. That's that's kind of a bit of a you know red herring maybe and, and something that we would be a bit wary of about and have to do quite a lot of digging to really understand <laughs> whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. What we prefer is what we'll, what what we've preferred to date, I should say, is founders coming to us and saying, "Look, we're building this product. We've got a bunch of clients. We're growing quickly, and we've just brought in this bit of AI, which has now saved us another thirty percent of margin, and that's going to allow us to invest more in marketing. And we've actually been able to redo our forecasting, and we think we're going to hit X million ARR within six months." Okay, that's that's pretty cool. That's exciting. Um, I want to be part of that because you've already got a product which isn't reliant on AI, but you are able to make far more efficient and exciting for customers using AI tools. So that's where we've kind of seen the opportunities. Okay. And do you see AI as kind of dis- disrupting the, you know, so someone's actually got an existing market position like that and someone else comes in and says, even though they're lagging behind, they could they use AI to you know? Do you see a lot of AI kind of undermining existing what existing people are doing, or kind of, or do you think so many people adopting it that actually it, it's more about the business application as it was before? Yeah, so this is a common mistake that entrepreneurs make, which is they see a sector and they people don't love the product and they think of a way that they can make it ten percent better. And they think that the whole market will just swarm towards them because it's a little bit better. We know that that's not true. The power of an incumbent is incredibly strong. And really, something needs to be 10x better, not 10% better, for it to really create a shift of customer behavior, whether that's consumer or enterprise. And so what we probably won't see, and I think that comes back to why we like these opportunities where they've already got traction, they've already got customers but they're using AI to increase margin. We like that versus someone coming in and saying, oh yeah, forget all, the, all those companies that have been successful so far. We've got this AI tool and everyone's going to come and use us. I think it's unlikely that that's going to happen, particularly when the cost of implementing AI is coming down. And so the incumbents can easily, more easily turn on AI tools into the existing experience. So. I'm sure there will be some companies that kind of like AI first and therefore win a market. But what we're seeing from a more sort of maybe measuring risk reward and and, and thinking about general opportunities across je- lots of different sectors is more how do you bring it into the experience that's already working versus, you know, build from the ground up. Yeah, that's uh, yeah because that creates an interesting angle because I think... That suggests, although there's a paradigm shift, it's not 
global in some sense. It's not it's not changing everything. I mean, there's this this idea that you know, if, if software the world AI will eat software, and and maybe it's not as dramatic as that in one sense, in that it doesn't actually change business models or it doesn't change the idea of customer acquisition, but it's more about what's going on under, underlying. Is that, is, that, is that a fair comment? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, I think I think mobile was probably a bigger shift in the sense that it literally created completely novel opportunities because we went from computers being in our homes to computers being with our persons. Uh-huh. And so we were literally carrying a super supercomputer everywhere we were going, which meant that we could have things brought to us. We could have we could do things on demand, like instantly through our phones mm-hmm. and and constantly be on. So it was a quite a different shift. Whereas what this is, is like a, a smart layer that can be embedded into every application, but it's not going to necessarily change the human element, which is that we are still only humans with one attention span, one body, one amount of time. And so, you know, there, there are only so much things that we can do. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the maybe some of the disruption is over-egged and um, maybe some of the the real usability is maybe underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I think related to that, presumably you're seeing at the moment very wide range of how and, and how effectively people are implementing AI. Do you see that as kind of equalizing then over the next few years? So, you know, it might be someone companies say it's not using much for coders at the moment, but in two years' time or maybe less, every coder in the world would be sitting with a co-pilot next to them or some or an equivalent, and, and they will all be two times more effective just universally. Yes, and I think that's great, and I think that will drive more efficiency, but I think what it comes down to is underlying product market fit for the overall business. So if I'm writing code twice as quickly as another company but no one's actually interested in what I'm building then I'm 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 just finding out a lot quicker that no one cares if I, if I've got an amazing product and I'm shipping new features that add value add revenue per user all these things then then yeah I'm going to drive more efficiency so efficiency doesn't necessarily equal success but if it, if efficiency in the right direction certainly does so yeah it's it, it's going to multiply everything and maybe we'll start to see, you know, companies fail faster, companies succeed faster because the, the feedback loop will might shorten because efficiencies improve. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I can see it leading experimentation. I can also lead, see it leading to almost like a spray and pray approach, where it's like the cost of adding a feature suddenly comes down so much. It's like, well, well, we might as well just do it, and you know, if we can build three features in time, it uses you. You take us build one. Well, let's build all three and just see which one of these actually works, which could, at one level, actually create more confusion, not less. Yeah, there'll probably be a a tool in between that decision making process where the that they're being told based on all the data across the application which feature they should they should build. So th- there's still so much that AI can do that we're not using it for, like things like product management decisions. Is a great example. I mean, product managers spend hours and hours and hours looking through data, trying to find something that they can cling on to in order to justify the great expense of 
redirecting the product team onto a new feature for the next three weeks, which may cost as much as a hundred grand or more to, to build. And then they might get to the end of that process and decide that they don't have enough data and it's kind of, you know, a big waste of time. And then they start looking for the next feature that they can justify to build. With AI, we should be able to find that out much faster. So yeah, there's so many different ways that this will be used. Um, we can't predict them all, but I'd, I'd just encourage anyone to think about what challenges are they having? What takes too long at the moment? What could be automated? What data would be required to, to understand that and then give it a go? You know, the, the other day, I, I helped my wife with her business, which is called Narchi, which is a homeware marketplace app similar to sort of Depop or Vinted, but specifically for the interior design market. And, um, you know, the other day I asked ChatGPT to give me a list of 10 ways that we could grow a homeware marketplace app and it spat out 10 ideas. And then I said, okay, show me data to support which one will we should prioritize. And then it did that. And then, you know, by the time I'd asked five or six questions, I had three very solid actionable things with data and resources and everything that, to, to 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 go to Harriet with and say, hey, we should probably be doing these things. Um, yeah. We're not at the moment, and that's no criticism to what we've been doing. It's just we haven't had time or thought about it or whatever. And that was just like a fun little thing I did in 15 minutes at like yeah. 7 p.m. Yeah. on a on a Monday <laughs> night. You know? So it, there, there's so much we can use it for, and it's almost like forcing yourself to use it so then you understand how else you can use it you can't get good at something until you get started and so i'd encourage everyone to get started and try things and from there you'll find the use cases well i've got me i have tried it and i haven't got a use case for it in my own work yet so i think it's i'd like to think i've added too much value in my reports but i'm sure it's actually just a matter of time before chat gpt starts to do some of what i can do <laughs> Well, we still need the the the, the reports mm-hmm. and uh, the the drafting. I mean, yesterday actually we were writing some market commentary at Portfolio Ventures based on the first half of 2023. We wrote a draft. One of the partners reviewed it, rewrote some of it, and then I thought, well, let's just put it into ChatGPT and ask it to make very minor changes, but improving the grammar and and reducing. The characters by 50 as well so just tightening it up reducing the grammar but keeping the general structure and and wording and it was just better it was just a, <laughs> it, it, was, it was just you know 10 15 better than what we'd written and it literally took 20 seconds for the for the bot to do it and then we shared that with the third partner base and we were like here's our first draft and they were like this is so well written. And we were like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, the whole thing took us an hour basically mm-hmm. to put a load of bullet points in, flesh those out with one of us, the second person review it, then put it into ChatGBT and almost have like a polished end version at the end of it. But it all comes down to the prompts you give the bots to improve that. If I just said, rewrite this, it would use a load of words that I didn't use. It would use a lot of synonyms to make it sound fancier than it needed to be. And it, would, it wouldn't be as good. So it's about learning about your prompts and asking it to rewrite it with only small changes, with 50 characters less and improving grammar with, whilst maintaining the general structure. If you give it that prompt, it, it has a lot you know, a lot less freedom to go wild. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I've, see, I've seen that there are some businesses built on providing prompts, which is clearly a, a, a short-term business because in, in two years' time, everyone who uses ChatVT is going to be really good at giving prompts. But right now, we're all still learning. Yeah, 100%. I didn't know that. I hadn't seen one of those companies. But yeah, the, the shelf life might be quite short. Mm-hmm. I've, seen a, a couple of, I've seen a couple advertised but they, they they crop up in sort of magazine articles, I think. You know, sort of here's ten prompts to help do a chat GPT and the the you know guest postings kind of type things. So it seems to me one of the challenges in this world, which we keep alluding to, is that it is really fast moving. So I when I was doing some research for this, I realised Chat GPT actually only came out in November twenty twenty two. That is what's at the time of recording. That's eight months ago, nine months ago since, and it feels like the world has changed. And we've had ChatGPT three, ChatGPT three point five, ChatGPT four, and G- version four is so much better than version three or even three point five. And that symbolic, I think, of what's going on in the world of AI. How does it affect you as an investor in terms of just keeping up with what's going on? Well, firstly, it's part of being an investor, like being a curious, you know, early adopting type of individual, I think is a great strength when being an investor. It, it's got to be fun and you've got to enjoy it and to, 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 to warrant the amount of time and the amount of reading and stuff it takes to, to try and stay on top of it all. But yeah, it's moving very quickly. I think that is the, the understanding across the space is, is improving so that these these use cases are coming to fruition, which is great. But it, it is also, yeah, it, it is also one of the reasons why I've mentioned previously that just investing in the next AI business that you see is probably not a prudent thing to do because it, everything is moving so quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's no, that, that you have to be conscious of, you know, do they have a commercial model here? Do clients want this product? So that's why we come back to those fundamentals of looking at businesses that are, you know, really into their sector, really know what they're doing, have commercial traction, have good customer references, and are growing well, and can use AI versus just like investing in the next AI thing, because it is it is moving so quickly, and it will continue to move quickly. And we're probably just at the the beginning of where this will go. Some of that is exciting. Some of it is potentially worrying. But I think on the whole, what we'll see is more and more people benefiting from the use of AI, whether it's a faster response from your bank, whether it's killing off scams within banks, you know, all sorts of things. There there will be a whole bunch of great outcomes from this, as well as obviously human nature the 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 one percent abusing it in some way so yeah lots to play out and generally i i sit on the more positive side of what it will do for for everyone i think i think most people in the venture industry by nature would actually lean towards that anyway but you mentioned the kind of the worrying aspects and i think we 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 couldn't discuss AI without completely ignoring a couple of these, and one of the one of these relates to the sort of fast moving sort of aspect of it in that it's clearly going to be disruptive, 
and affect jobs. And some of the angst is because suddenly it's affecting white-collar jobs rather than blue-collar jobs, who probably didn't have the platform, but white-collar people do. But I think there is a case for saying the change with AI could be so rapid, it could actually be disruptive in a way that maybe other technological changes that took longer weren't. Yeah, I think there's that risk. I think that is potentially true. I think that the types of jobs will evolve. I remember when I, I so I, I joined the sort of workforce in sort of 2013, I think. And I think at the time there was some stat about how most people were studying degrees that the job didn't exist anymore. You know, things had moved in that period. A lot had changed as well with smartphones and things like that. The types of roles that were available in the market had changed massively since we'd started our degree to when we'd ended our degree. And I think the same will be true here. So what, you know, what people do in their work life in the future is going to change. It constantly changes. And hopefully that leads to less mundane roles that people don't enjoy and more creative and inspiring and human driven roles that you know we've just done a podcast with Andre Early Bird and it's a great podcast about how data is changing VC and how funds are using data to inform or at least support investment decisions and Hector made a great point that is that's all great but if you're a top tier founder and we're all trying to get into the top deals because this is a power law game where the, the returns come from the few at the very top, you want to take money from a fund where there's a real partner with real experience who you can pick up the phone to and go, I've had a terrible week and I need help. Not a program that said, here's three million quid to go and build your business because because computer says yes. Like There will still be human interaction in a lot of business and it will probably be free up more time and resources to allow humans to to make those connections and be creative and come up with new ideas and new businesses and new things rather than the the administrative side of business which can be rather boring yeah and, 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 and I, think, I think it's interesting i i i've made, I've made the observation probably le- it's le- probably less true now that for an industry that was primarily about investing in technology. The venture capital industry is really bad at applying it in their own businesses. Yeah, we are terrible at buying software. Um, <laughs> we really are, and I think that's you know it's the the old show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. Like as as VCs, we're incentivized really by two things. One is raising as much money as possible so that we can survive off the fees from managing that money. And then the second is investing in the best companies possible so that we drive the best returns possible so that we can raise more money. And that basically there's two sides to that flywheel. There's raising more money and investing in great companies, generating returns, which then drives more money. And then the cycle continues. What doesn't often come into that circle and cycle is, oh, we could buy this piece of software and then we'd hire less one associate. Like that, that we're not very good at that. And I'm not suggesting that we're suddenly going to become like really tech focused, but we're not really tech businesses. There is a lot of a human element to investing. There is gut feel. There is things that are hard, that is harder to measure and and put into a 
piece of software that will tell you whether this investment is good or not. But we will start to see more data-driven investment decisions and we will start to see more technology in the space. But as a as a sector, we are terrible at buying software. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, or someone, I'm building it. <laughs> <laughs> as someone who's working at the moment on how to, you know, give, giving some stuff about helping investors select funds it's i i'm very sympathetic to that challenge because as you say it's there's still that element of it's not just about this quantitative number and and there's got to be an element of subjectivity in there but what that is and how you justify that is tricky yeah and you know an example may be how partners communicate with lps and you know I have seen very good examples of communication and I've seen not so good examples of communication when things go well and when things go wrong. A good example recently was when the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco happened earlier in the year and we had some exposure. I think we had five companies with exposure, three not so critical, two fairly critical we sent, I think, six emails between Monday, uh, sorry, Friday, 9 a.m., and Monday 9am, updating all of our investors on our exposure, how bad it was, what we were doing about it, how we were communicating. And by Monday, you know, the HSBC deal had gone through and everything was fine. We had so much positive feedback from the way that we dealt with it based on how we communicated, which has absolutely nothing to do with how the fund will actually return in the future. So there is a huge human element there where we knew instinctively that people would value slight over communication in that scenario. And so that's how we dealt with it. And I, I, I hear from some other partners and founders and things that some funds go quiet in, in situations like that. And, and that can be very frustrating. So, yeah. So I think, you know, maybe that's part of what humans can bring in the future is, is that kind of openness and, and transparency and good communication. And yeah, see, I do see a lot of value in that. If, if I was an you know, investor in a certain fund, I'd want to be treated like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So coming back to one final thing I want to ask about investing in AI at the moment is that if, if I look at the venture capital industry as a whole, we're, we're pretty much in a downturn. Within that, we have what some people are referring to as an AI bubble. And I don't know if this is just because it's sort of sucking a lot of air or if there is actually any valuation effects going on. So, you know, is it, do AI sort of investments, are they got higher valuations? Are they just sucking all the money? What's, is there a bubble out there? So I would say that there is, but it's touching, it's a very small bubble as in that the, there are, then there has been some funding announcements, some funding rounds announced where it doesn't really make sense. There is sort of like billion dollar valuations in a in a in like a pre-seed round of a new AI company, and but those are very rare circumstances. I think this is one of the other challenges that the venture industry has is that one stupid investment is made or one crazy valuation is exposed and people think the whole venture industry is is, is stupid basically <laughs> and we're all caught up in hype the reality is there's there was an article recently that showed that valuations across europe have come down in the last two mm-hmm. years 
And on the whole, funds are much more price sensitive. That we've probably all experienced at least one company that has had to do a down round. And so we are aware that later funding is less prevalent and growth stage funding did dry up for a period where there, there was no funding for Series B plus companies for a period. That is thankfully coming back slowly, but we are all valuation conscious. We're not because necessarily we're trying to take more equity or, 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 or screw over founders in any way. It's more so that if we value a company at a certain price, you will experience a much harder funding process at the next funding round. And as a result, you'll have to accept worse terms, which then could de-incentivize you completely to even run this business. So there's so many considerations. But what I would say is that valuations are down generally. There is a small pocket of certain AI investments that are mainly happening in the US that are at extortionate valuations, but they are generally outliers. They are people like you know, Reed Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn, is involved in an AI company that raised an incredible round. Well, he is he is one of the best known founders and operators in the world. So Reed Hoffman gets launched, a premium by himself. <laughs> exactly. He could launch anything and it, he would get a crazy valuation because people would want to back anything that he does next. So I think, yes, there is a bubble, but it's a very small bubble and it's not impacting the wider venture and technology industry and on the whole valuations have come down and in any market in any cycle if you get one of the top 10 founders in the world launching something they're going to command high valuations and raise a lot of money fairly effortlessly because they have incredible track record yeah yeah that's that's probably fair so in terms of sort of one eye on the future, is it more of the same from AI, do you think? Or do you think there's another paradigm shift to come in the near future? Or, or what do you see? What I'd like to see is more companies experimenting with low-risk areas of their business to learn more about AI and then start to look at how they can implement that into their business. I think over the next 12 months, it will become something that you know people talk about when they go for a coffee or over a drink when they're with their friends because they'll go oh, i've started using this it's amazing and you know we'll start to see real people have real benefit from using ai at work that's what i'd love to see and that's not coming from someone that's invested in those ai businesses that's going to benefit from people using those tools it's from investing in companies that i've seen start using these tools and the the wow moment that they've had a few weeks later when they start to see the outcome of that is really amazing and special, which I'm really excited about. I think that there you will be something... You to have another go. <laughs> <laughs> I think there will be something that I can't foresee that will wow us and shock us again. I hope it's a positive thing. I think, you know, this week... At the time of recording, we've seen nine banks sign up to a, a system built by MasterCard to reduce scams and fraud. I think that's awesome. Most people won't recognize that in their day-to-day -day lives, but will probably benefit from that in some way. So I just think that there's so much going on. And I think that more and more people will start to see benefit from some of this stuff. And there's probably, yeah, there's probably something around the corner that I can't predict that's hopefully a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. 
yeah, we'll look forward to that. What I'll do now is I'll quickly turn to our favourite questions. We've, we've, we've already kept you for a while, so we'll, we'll keep these fairly, fairly quick. What was the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why did you make it? I don't know if it was the most recent, but we did recently announce an investment into Connect Earth, which is an environmental data startup based in London that offers sustainability tools to financial firms. I think we made a conscious decision not to name climate tech as a sector we invested in because we didn't want to feel like we were greenwashing in any way. But we're obviously aware that there is more that can be done and that backing companies that create a more sustainable future is a good thing. But we are fintech investors. So when we found a company that was had real strong commercial traction, but was gen- genuinely making financial services more aware and better at looking at ESG and carbon accounting and things like that, that was exciting for us. And so we, we tracked them for a while and we, we made an investment. It helps that the team are exceptional, brilliant operators with founder experience. So we were really excited to do that deal. Sounds promising. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, so recently, a company that I backed at my last fund went out of business. And it was a, for me personally, it was one that I really, really cared about. You care about all your investments, but there are certain companies that you get closer to through the process of of investing and, and tracking them and speaking to the founder. And unfortunately, they were relying on a change in legislation, which if it come through would have been a massive tailwind for them. And instead, the legislation being delayed by a few years actually created a, an endpoint for the company, which meant that they couldn't really raise any more. And they had to sell for, for a nominal amount, which is basically a write-off to the investors. So there's a couple of learnings from that. The first is that even great founders can struggle in really tough markets. Regulation is something to be hyper aware of because, yes, it sounds great when someone says, oh, well, you know, by 2030, you know, we're all going to be driving electric vehicles because look at the targets and stuff. You have to take that with a pinch of salt because governments change they move targets back, they change, they de- delay legislation, it gets blocked in the, some house, or, you know, it, it can really be out of your control. And um, as investors, we're trying to minimise those risks. And actually, that's actually a big one, which we were aware of, but maybe didn't fully comprehend how how critical it would be. And then finally, they were operating in the accountancy space, And anything that is related to taxation has some form of limitation in how quickly that can scale. Tax is generally country by country. And so therefore, if you're building any product around tax, you do have some limitation on which markets you can go into without completely changing your product. So, you know, we've invested in a lot of fintech. I've invested in a lot of fintech. There are certain markets which are brilliant and global and you know, you can build a tech platform that anyone can use in any country. Taxation is not one of them. So, yeah, that was just an extra little bit of learning around really understanding the fundamentals of a market and assessing how that may limit growth in the future. Okay. 
yeah, that sounds like um, some useful lessons, if, if not if it's slightly painful. Um, yeah. As if to know. So the EIS and VCT industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? I'd say that EIS, I think most people listening to this will be aware of the benefits of EIS in particular and, and, and VCT as well. But And it's an incredible scheme that we're incredibly lucky to have in this country that has definitely created more jobs, more economic prosperity and, and redirected funds from you know, top earners it back into early stage, which which then creates more jobs and more, yeah, more more economic value for all of us. I would say that there is probably a slight misunderstanding of the value that wrapping 20 deals into a fund with EIS can bring. I think people don't necessarily appreciate that if one company goes to zero, you can still get your loss relief on that. You don't need the whole fund to go to zero to get your loss relief on that. So I think there's probably some misunderstandings of EIS within a fund structure. And I'd like, you know, if, if people were to take away something from this, I'd like them to try and understand more about the benefits of going into a fund. And there's much more beyond economic return. There's access to co-investment. There's access to the other investors in the fund. There's access to events. There's a huge amount of benefit that you can get going into a fund versus just always direct investing. And I'd like to see more people investing in startups with EIS, and but can also considering funds if they're at the beginning of their journey, because it's a good way into building a broad portfolio with diversification and learning from people in the industry and for what is very small management fees on the whole, you, you're getting a lot of value for, for that. Yeah. Well, as someone who is working actively on the education side, not just with this podcast, I, I, I wholeheartedly endorse that. I think there's a, you know, the industry can, it's getting better, but I think, I think it can do a lot more to, to kind of get its message out. Um, yeah. And just like every amazing scheme like EIS, there's, there's ways that it's been not used in the best way. And so therefore that you know, as I said earlier, venture is a power law game. The top companies return all of the returns and the majority don't. The old adage of nine out of 10 startups fail is is true within venture as well, really. So you need that one that returns to be an absolute winner. And And I think historically, a lot of EIS funds haven't been able to get into that one because of how they've been structured or how they've charged fees or things like that. And so my personal little goal for me at the moment is to try and reframe that without being you know overly promotional and just trying to just highlight where we could do it better and how do we take this amazing tax release scheme and invest it in a in a true venture way into top tier founders with top tier business models in in great markets where we can build you know, hopefully some of the best tech companies in the world from the UK, then we all benefit. So yeah, just trying to understand some of, you know, what's happened historically and what we need to do better, I think is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and always out for book ideas. Is there anything out there you like and would recommend? So I have to admit, I'm not an avid reader, okay. um, but I, I, I have read a lot of good books and, where I, and I actually only 
read business books, <laughs> which is sort of shows how 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 I'm into my reading. Is I, I if I do read, I, I really want to read something that I feel is going to hopefully improve me. I re- the the most impactful book I've probably ever read is a company is one called the, the the Personal MBA, which is by a guy called Josh Kaufman. It was written, I think, over ten years ago. But I didn't do an MBA, and I probably will never do one. But by reading his book, he's basically condensed all the necessary resources and put it into a pretty easy book to read. It will take you through all the fundamentals that you'd learn on an MBA course. And I read it when I was still a student. And uh, I learned just as much from that as I did from my undergraduate degree. And I remember every, you know, every few pages, I was taking more notes down and writing things and going and searching and looking at other things. And so I'd say that was something that had a huge impact on me. And he also slightly puts you off doing a real MBA, which I think, again, I think I benefited from because I probably was someone that probably thought I might go and do something like that. And I'm glad I don't have the the extra debt and things like that. And uh, it, it hasn't necessarily held me back. So yeah, it was probably the one that's had the most impact on, on my life. Yeah, no, it would be interesting. I, I, I think as someone who's been around the finance industry for some time, I kind of got the, got the impression I've, I've covered a lot of the stuff that an MBA would cover in various times, but I'm sure I haven't covered everything. And, uh, and it could be one of these Dunning-Kruger things where I think I've covered everything, but actually I, I, I know less than I think I do. So, Yeah, and he's also got a website with kind of like newsletter and stuff. So, you, you know, I think they... I don't know how frequently they post now, but there are there are ways that you can sort of consume a lot of the content in a in very digestible format. And yeah, there are chapters that people might want to skip past because they already know a lot about that space. But for someone that you know has hadn't done an MBA at the time and 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 was just kind of keen to progress my business understanding it definitely moved me forwards in a relatively short space of time. Okay. Well, I shall add that to my shopping list. What do you wish you knew when you started Venture Capital that you know now? I wish I'd understood more about the importance of track records in terms of investing. So when I started, I started making a few angel investments and it was the first time really that I felt accepted into the inner sort of world of the tech industry. Previously, I'd been on the founder side and I had raised money from investors. And, you know, some of my peers might have seen me as someone that had achieved something. And, uh, but I didn't really feel like that. And I didn't feel like I was treated like that. And, and then when I started angel investing, I had other angels and, and VCs kind of reaching out and saying, oh, I saw you did this deal and like they're a great company. And I started to think that, yeah, I, I started to feel much more at home in the space and feel more accepted. And then when I launched my first fund, I, I had these investments on my track record, but they were so early that they didn't, they didn't actually account to anything in terms of what a 
normal fund would present as a track record. And luckily, my partners did have some track record. So that's kind of how we got together that first fund. And then I've now joined Portfolio Ventures and Will and Will, who are the managing partners and co-founders of PV are, you know, they've been going almost 10 years with their angel network and they've got an incredible track record where they've actually you know, returned cash. And, and I think that, you know, it, it just takes quite a while to build that up. And you always want to kind of sprint before you can walk. And it's just going to take a bit of time for that track record to really develop. And the feedback loop is quite long. And I probably, yeah, probably thought it was going to be easier to to kind of uh, demonstrate what you're doing. And um, it just takes a little bit, well, a bit longer. So I've come to terms with that a bit more now and feel a bit more accepting of the fact that a lot of the companies we've invested in are doing really well, but I, I won't be able to sort of really hang my hat on them until, till you know, they get bought or they raise much bigger rounds later on. And st- so, so yeah, it's just got a, a maturing, I guess, of understanding that this is, this takes a long time and uh, there's no quick wins and uh, yeah, just got to stick at it and stay principled and stick to your values and, and keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it's definitely a long term game. Um, it is. Yeah. So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, where should they look? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, James Pringle. So please come and connect with me. Personalized messages are always preferred, but if you don't have time, just click the connect button. We obviously have the podcast, so it'd be great if people could go and have a listen. But yeah, LinkedIn's the best place to connect with me. I'm fairly active. I try and post quite frequently about entrepreneurship and venture capital and and the UK market specifically and try and champion UK businesses, UK founders, and hopefully provide value to people that are following to, to learn more about this whole space. So yeah, that's the best place. Okay, we shall post a link in the show notes as usual. Thank you very much for coming on today, James. Really enjoyed chatting with you again. Thanks, Brian. I really enjoyed it and I hope it was useful to the listeners. I hope you enjoyed the overview of how AI and venture capital are overlapping just now. This is one trend that is not going away. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harvardandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harvardandco.com Thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks' time.